Welcome to Ms. Interpreted, her podcast of public relations and strategic communications, demystified by Kelly Fletcher and Fletcher Marketing PR. Welcome listeners to the Misinterpreted Podcast. I'm Kelly Fletcher, CEO of Fletcher Marketing PR, and I'm here with my colleague, Fletcher Senior Strategist, Mary Beth West. Hey, Kelly. It's good to see you, Mary Beth. Yeah, it's good to see you too. I'm just glad that we're here during the kickoff to the holiday season. Many listeners may be traveling in airports or cars or train stations or what have you with their earbuds and speakers in tow to pipe in their favorite podcast. So we thought we'd take a podcast trip down memory lane to some of our most uplifting moments of thanks and gratitude here on Misinterpreted. So this should be a nice session here. And who couldn't use a shot of happy nowadays, right? Yes, exactly. (laughs) Although I will say it's a much better, 2021 has been a better year than 2020. So, but it is that time of gratitude. And we recently hit the two-year anniversary mark for the podcast. It's hard to believe. It's been an amazing ride. Loved cultivating the stories and experiences from so many guests and meeting so many really amazing people with just compelling, inspiring stories that have made this podcast kind of take on a life of its own that I had no expectation of when we started it. And when I started taking a look back out of all of our episodes, many of the stories really weren't about PR and marketing as much as they were about heartfelt stories and human connection, which really should always be a part of everything we do in our careers and our work and in public relations and marketing communications. And so it seemed perfect as we give thanks this season. And I'm really excited about taking a look back and hearing their voices again of of some of our most inspirational episodes. You know, I agree with that. And I think at its core, isn't that what public relations is? It is those human connections and, you know, those heartstrings pieces. And really, in all honesty, I wish we had a full three or four hours for this specific episode to capture every single memorable moment, such as what you've just described. But of course, we're on limited time. But we have collected here, I think, a really nice handful that we think will particularly brighten the holiday commute. I mean, just some of these sound bites we have are just are really full of that heartwarming connection listeners. So since the holidays are all about family, if I may, I'm going to kick off the nepotism route here, going uh, <laughs> to kick off the chat with Marshall Ramsey. Marshall joined us two Thanksgivings ago in 2019, and He is, uh, full disclosure, he is a member of my husband's extended family. He is also a two-time Pulitzer Prize nominee in the journalistic field of editorial cartooning, which I think is really interesting. He is amazing. Marshall's work has received national acclaim in the news media, including cartoons he drew as memorials to Barbara and Georgia Bush. Marshall lost his own parents in recent years, and this story he told about a life lesson his father taught him really set the stage for this idea of what it means to be resilient and to look hardship in the eye and be determined to overcome it. And boy, can I relate to that over the past two years. And and with words that sometimes mean so much more coming from a father, Marshall is so, oh, I can't wait to meet him in person someday. Yes, and we'll make that happen. And I think that it was even a bit clairvoyant on his part. I know Marshall's Survivor story was the perfect prep session, I think, for a global pandemic, which was on its way, which we did not know at that time that we did this recording because it was in November of 
2019. Clearly, the pandemic didn't hit the U.S. until about five months after this interview with us on this podcast, but it's almost like Marshall knew we needed this message before we knew we needed it. It was, as he would call it, a God moment. Yes, it is. So let's have Chris Hill, our sound engineer and friend and comrade in arms with HumblePod, take us back to that clip with Marshall. Chris? Getting back to that core piece of the editorial cartooning, because it does have the potential to touch people in such really poignant and unique ways how does that make you feel? Like I said, I was eight years old and knew I wanted to do it. And I discovered I was good at it. I didn't ask for the business to change. The internet blew up the newspaper model and, mm-hmm. you know, the newspaper model didn't help itself. And we could do seven shows well, on that. Yes, but I, we're not going to do that I, today. I, but, um, but do come back but and I, we will do the other But, you know, I'm, I'm getting my master's right now. I'm sitting there oh. in my class and they're talking about, you know, all the mistakes the business made. I'm like, excuse me, I was on the 50-year... 50-yard line on that because I've been through 18 rounds of layoffs at the newspaper and now work for a nonprofit new site, which is another model which seems to be working for right now. And and I really love the people I work with. What it means to me, of course, it's the core of my brand. That's what a lot of people know me for. But back in 2010, I had just been named a Pulitzer finalist a second time and been named a top 100 employee of Gannett. And they called me in the office one day and they said, we're making you part-time. So they cut my pay in half. They cut my benefits. I'm sitting there. It's like, I, can I do nothing right, people? Well, I just run a marathon and raise $13,000 for cancer research because I'm a cancer survivor. In, in my, your spare time. In my spare time. And my dog had just died in the vet. So it was just literally, <laughs> no, I was yeah. not adulting well that day either. Yeah. But they said, we're going to do that to you. And I just looked at them and started laughing. And they said, why are you laughing? I said, because it's going to be the best thing that ever happened to me. The parable of the talents, and not to give you a Sunday school lesson, but I, I remember when I was in college, I was work, right out of college, I was working as a high school janitor. And I was six months into it, I was still throwing a massive pity party. And I went to church and they were talking about the parable of the talents. And you had the master who gave his talents to his three servants. And, and I realized I was the servant who was bearing his talent because I was afraid. Oh. And when they said, oh, we're going to cut your pay in half, something lit inside of me. And I started mm-hmm. using the other talents that I had. And cartoonists are weird generally in the sense that a lot of us drew pictures just so we could get attention. Like, hey, look at here. I can draw a picture. But we did I feel comfortable talking in front of 5,000 people. I have no problem doing that. Mm-hmm. Or I don't, and I'm, I'm a decent enough writer. I can write, I can draw, I can do radio, I can do television. But I didn't know that until that happened. Mm-hmm. And so people say, are you mad that that happened? I'm like, no, it's the best thing that ever happened to me. The editorial cartoons, though, are the core of what I do because we are such a visual society. Mm-hmm. Even though, and what happened was, and, and the reason why that number went down so greatly was because Basically, when you lose half your revenue overnight, like the newspaper business did, they, they obviously have to cut costs. So they get rid of specialized positions. They get rid of movie columnists, the sports mm-hmm. columnists, general costs, and cartoonists. So suddenly, you know, it's hard to figure out how you're going to make a living. But for me, I can put them out there, get the attention, drive social media. I can get speaking gigs off of it. I can do whatever. So it's it's a fascinating, the last 10 years, I've totally blown up my brand and rebuilt it mm-hmm. in a way that I have multiple income streams and been able to actually, with social media, been able to reach a larger audience. Just recently, we had a guest on Marcus Hall with, he founded his own retailing and it's a Marcus Nelson Denim. It's a business in Knoxville. 
and he had an illegal gambling operation on the side to help fund his business. That's and a went great to, idea. Exactly right. I mean, he went to prison. Had went. Wow. I mean, had to face the music on all of that, but then came back stronger from having yeah. realized and kind of taken ownership of the fact. Okay, I made bad decisions here. What do I do now? And this whole element here that you're talking about of being faced with information and news, you know, it's not very helpful to your cause. But being able to turn it into a positive and realizing that there can be that silver lining, not to sound trite, but you had that immediate understanding that, okay, this is going to be an opportunity. Let me tell you where I learned that lesson. I learned that lesson probably about six miles from here on the middle of Fort Lathan Lake. I was eight years old. Uh-huh. My dad, who was 40 at the time, was a big eight-year-old, and he loved to water ski, yeah. and his son wouldn't water ski. So one day, he threw me out in the middle of the lake, and he said, you're not getting out of that lake until you get up on your skis. And he drug me up and down that lake until I drank so much of that river water that I have gills on the side of my neck. At the very end, right when he was getting frustrated, I popped up, which surprised him Uh and it surprised me. Uh And I'm back there in the back. I'm in between the lake. You know, I don't want to get out there. And dad looks at me and he gets bored. You did not want my dad to get bored because suddenly he turns the boat as tight as he could to sling me outside the wake and he starts driving in a circle. So the boat's doing 20, I'm doing 450 miles an hour. And as anybody who knows anything about Ford Loudon Lake, it, there's a lot yeah. of driftwood on it. Yeah. Yes, I do I know hit, that lake. Apparently, a sequoia. Um, I did like <laughs> five or six of just. <laughs> For those of you who are old like me, you remember the agony of defeat on Wide World of Sports? That was me. So here I am. Xers were the Xers here. We know that. Right. That so I'm doing very that, well. the eight flips and the ski hits me in the back of the head. And dad, being a loving, caring man, pulls the boat around and he starts poking me with a paddle, saying, Are you okay? And I'm laying there in the water going, Go away. He said, Grab the rope. Um, I said, No, go away. I'm swimming back. He said, It's five miles. And it was about that far. We were pretty far downriver. Yeah. And he said, no, grab the rope. I said, tell me one good reason why. And he said, because we're going to make your story about how you got back up, not how you fell down. He Uh, said, don't get me wrong. I'm going to tell everybody how you fell down because it was hilarious. (laughs) Dear old dad. 25 years later, I'm laying in bed on oxycodone or whatever the the painkiller was. I just had half my side carved out because of cancer. Mm -hmm. My dad, he had cancer like a year before that. And I'm laying there and I'm dreaming of purple hippopotamus and all kinds of weird things. And I feel this pressure against my forehead. It's like a thumping feeling. And I'm thinking, this is a weird side effect. But I open my eyes and there's my dad leaning over me, poking me with his big fat finger. And I'm like, what are you doing? He said, get up. I said, I just had cancer surgery. He said, no, I'll help you up. We're going to walk around the block. And I said, why? He said, because we're going to make your story about how you beat cancer, not how you had cancer. When they made me part-time, I kept hearing my dad yell, grab the rope. It's not what happens to you. It's how you frame what happens to you. And I think sometimes we as a country, and I'm going to just get out my big Bob Ross big brush and paint some happy (laughs) trees here to kind of paint with my big broad brush. But Uh, I think sometimes we lack resilience. And and yes, I could have catastrophized and said, it's not fair. I'm 50 years old now. I should be able to play golf every day. Well, I had melanoma, so I shouldn't be playing golf. Obviously, sunshine's not my friend. But the point is, why all this happened, I don't know. But I'm glad it did because I was able to be able to learn that I could do other things. I could learn about, you know, I graduated with a marketing degree from UT. That was once again my dad's doing. I'm giving dad a lot of props here, but he does deserve it. But yeah. mom too. 
but the fact that I was able to use my education to be able to figure out where I was going to go next. So yeah. why sit down and feel sorry about something saying, oh, it's an opportunity? Uh, that's just an amazing story. I mean, that's very uplifting. I didn't know I was going to be crying today, but... That's I have just that effect a, on women. Right. <laughs> I make them all cry. My wife's like going, yeah, mm-hmm. I have to live with them. Oh, I just love him. What an amazing yeah. talent he is and how lucky you are to have him in your family. Yes. The way he weaves together storytelling is just like what Dolly Parton's character in Still Magnolias talked about when Truvy says, laughter through tears is my favorite emotion. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> And you know, I'd forgotten that you mentioned Marcus Hall's story in your tee-up of that chat with Marshall. So I have to take that segue and run with it. Oh, yeah, please do. I mean, Marcus is also just such a great one to spotlight. So let's do that. Yes, Marcus. He just has this energy and light about him. And let's check out this point of inspiration from a clip with my favorite man in fashion, a gentleman who had one of the most unconventional backgrounds and entrepreneurial stories, Marcus Hall of Mark Nelson Denim, an apparel brand based in Knoxville, Tennessee. Yes, I keep saying that Marcus's story needs to be made into a movie or a documentary or something. It's sort of this from rags to riches to the wrong side of the law and finally to redemption. I mean, he's just a, a showstopper in my view. Yeah, and he's pretty easy on the eyes too. You know, that always <laughs> yes, helps. <indeed. laughs> so Marcus has the story of making a bad choice, dealing with the consequences, and arriving from the other side of that experience to not only survive, but thrive. Gives me chills every time I hear it. Chris, please cue up this one with Marcus. Did you ever have a a moment where you thought, okay, I've made it. This business is going to be an incredible success. Well, yes, I did. And that was, I guess, four years ago now. And to be, Mm -hmm. I I can remember it was June 8th. I just got back from uh, Cabo celebrating and that was on my way to a major company here to uh, help design their company uniform and got pulled over by the Knoxville Police Department, and I was like, oh, driving in my brand new Porsche. I'm like, wow, I'm in 50 stores, and hallelujah, this is, I can't believe this dream has come true. And then the undercover IRS cops show up, and um, yeah. I had an out-of-body experience. And yeah. so, yeah, so I, it was a short-lived. It really was. And so, so, yeah, so let's kind of shift our course here and talk about, I mean, you had this viable growing business. You were, you just now said, how many stores were you in? And 50 stores, uh, not including our own brick and mortar. We had a, a thriving e-commerce and yeah. uh, actually we were a little over 50 stores, but 50 major stores. We were Living the dream. I mean, we had finally got to a point where the company was making money. I was actually writing myself a check, and, mm-hmm. and so here we go. Uh, yeah. yeah. But then you kind of got into this side hustle of sorts, and that got you into some serious trouble, as you just mentioned. I mean, and then you had just received, I think in that time period, the Chamber of Commerce Minority Business of the Year Award, and then everything started crashing down around you. So you've got to tell us you know, what that part of the story is. Uh, you got it. So what I didn't talk about, or we felt to talk about was how I started and funded the business. I I actually ran an illegal gambling operation here Mm -hmm. in Knoxville, Tennessee. And so um, the IRS didn't like that. And so... um, (laughs) As the IRS's (laughs) want to do. They didn't like that. And so it's a reality. And and so we were talking about how tragedy sometimes can... um, you know, change things. At the time, um, you know, I got arrested uh, for running an illegal gambling operation. Mm -hmm. They took basically everything I had. I actually had to go to prison for 14 months. Mm -hmm. I was sentenced to a 33-month prison sentence, but uh, ended up serving 14 months. Was able to get out by going to a uh, program called RDAP. 
It's a cognitive re- reprogramming mm-hmm. uh, drug, rehabilitation. And so they cover a lot in that uh, program, but that allowed me to uh, come home earlier than mm-hmm. 33 months. I didn't think, honestly, at the time when I was uh, released from prison, that I would even continue running the business. Yeah. I was shell-shocked. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was. Well, Mark, you know, we talk on this podcast quite often about the entrepreneurial journey and my entrepreneurial journey. And I know when I started my business, I was a divorced single mom. I had no capital and nobody would give me any money. I mean, what was your experience trying to start and run a business as a minority business owner? Is that the reason you turned to this dark side to fund fund your business? I'm not going to point the fingers or blame uh, anyone for it, mm-hmm. but it was definitely... Uh, yeah, so for my um, apparel business, I mean, a guy who had, you know, really no experience in running a, an apparel company, the easy out was, yes, it was easier for me to go the dark to the dark side or run an illegal gambling operation. But for me, looking back, it was the people I surrounded myself with at the time. Mm. I tried the traditional ways. And, and for me, also, I didn't want to take the, I took the shortcut. You know, I could have potentially... Uh, built up enough credit, enough capital to um, start a uh, an apparel business, but I mean, I would still likely be working on that. Yeah, I mean, you know what I mean. Time. It would have taken a long time, mm-hmm. and so the opportunity uh, came about from a, an old friend that said, "Hey, what do you think about this?" And you know, here we go. And had the opportunity, Kelly. I made the money to start the business, and had several opportunities to. Okay, say, hey, this is to, now I can quit. But uh, greed is, you know, a whole nother uh, story that we mm-hmm. could talk about. Yeah. Well, well, and that uh, that operation that you had, I mean, it was turning some serious cash. Right. So it was super hard to uh, turn that kind of money. Yeah. It's going to be hard right. for anyone. And I, I'd say that to say, hey, I'm going to walk away from making a million, a couple million dollars a year or whatever. So yeah, mm-hmm. it, it is. It's, it, it was tough. Yeah. Well, backing up to, I uh, mentioned we met, you came to a Christmas party at our office and we knew each other from afar. But when we really got to be friends was when you got out of prison. So I remember the day it all blew up and I think everybody was shocked because you are you're a celebrity in our <laughs> yes. you're a celebrity in our town and, and you got out of prison and I ran into you on Market Square and we were just chatting. You said, Hey, I, I'd love to get some advice on social media and using influencer marketing for my business. I'm trying to get it started back up. So we set up lunch. We go to lunch at the Oliver Royale. And you were just so honest. And, and you had to pay because I didn't have any money. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you've paid us back now by being here. So I don't remember good. if I paid or not. But no one's keeping score. Uh, no one's keeping score. But I, I just love the fact that you said, here's what happened. Yeah, and the honesty. I was like, yeah, you know, man, what happened? And you just were so honest and authentic that I think that that has really been what has kept people so rooting for you and cheering for you to make a comeback and and you have. And it's funny that you say that. Again, the day that I got pulled over and I thought, you know, wow, I finally made it. One of the things, and I look back and reflect on now, is I truly was, as they were putting me in handcuffs, was having an out-of-body experience like, who the hell is this going to, they're putting handcuffs on them and whoa. And, and, uh, and the days that followed that, you know, wow, you think about, what am I going to tell everyone? Yeah. But yeah. at the time, it's interesting living a lie, how much stress and pressure that can bring upon yourself. You it's know like what a mean? double life it's kind a of double, thing. And I yeah. totally was, you know, James Bond in it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I was like this 
guy who was running this gambling operation. Then I was this guy that was running this apparel business. And it was truly, you would think that I would be happy. For the last few months, right before I got in trouble, I was constantly complaining about, man, something's not right. Something's not right. But you talk yourself into, you know, you're not going to pay attention to the obvious. And, And so Karen in present life, when we ran into each other, Kel, it was a weight lifted off my yeah. shoulder. And so, you know, after you finally went through the process of going to court and then finally going to prison, those first couple of weeks of prison, it was like, wow, man, I don't have to lie anymore. You know what I mean? Like, wow. yeah. So this is the next chapter in my life where I can be just transparent and whatever happens, happens, you know, and if people accept me and fine, if they don't, then too bad. I mean, yeah, yeah. And so you get rid of, you lose that shell. And so that's the fire, you know, burning up. And then, you know, the, the things that grow thereafter is, is, are the beautiful things, you know, it, it's obviously a horrible scene and you never want to see tragedy happen to anyone. You speaking of those fires, but the recovery can right. be a beautiful process, a right. beautiful thing. You know, like Marshall's chat, that interview with Marcus was recorded about two years ago in November 2019, only months before the pandemic hit. And these few years later, I can relate so closely to his talking about the physical pain of major stresses and strains and the tolls it takes on your body, because I've been through that. Yeah. Oh, I can too. And don't even get me started about my neck, which no longer wants to move on a stressful day. It's all that looking down at your uh, screen. (laughs) Yeah, I would chalk it up to that in part, but just the everyday of what the past two years have been. And while Marcus's case was unusual, I think for obvious reasons, his comment about, I was James Bond in it. I love that (laughs) comment that he made. I mean, how... If finally, you know, his letting the truth come out, even with all its horrible outcomes with law enforcement, it gave him both the physical and mental release he needed from what had been this living a double life that he had been doing. It was just that part really resonated with me. Yeah, and as they say, the truth shall set you free, and that was certainly the case for Marcus. Yeah, we wish him all the best, Marcus, to you and all of your family Turning now to a powerhouse of a lady, WATE-TV Channel 6 News, and their morning anchor there, Tirza Smith. I loved our interview with her. She just came into the room just with this, as I said before, like an energy and a light. All of these people have that in common, that we're going back to their clips, and I was just so drawn to her. She's one of those powerhouse women I could listen to all day long. She had so much wisdom to share, and you just want to be your friend after you hear this. And as we talk about diverse families and the importance of embracing everyone, Tirsa spoke volumes about what it all means to her. Yeah, Chris, let's take a listen to that clip. If you're doing stories to make sure you show a complete picture of the Black community, one of the myths we always try to dispel is the fact that, oh, they're all single moms. They're all, I grew up at home with my mom and dad. Now, that's not everybody's story, and I get that. But we should have the luxury of having the complexity of knowing there are different types of families out there, just like you all. You know, yes. it's a, there are single moms that are white. They're still families. The respect still needs to be there. And so one of the things I kind of struggle back and forth with is, do I write something? What do I say? And I, it took me a little while because I, I just kept saying, like, Lord, I need the words. I need the words to be right. And so finally I did. And I said, you know, the one thing for me that I feel people can relate to is motherhood. And so I finally put up something because I was just having a moment where I was just like, I don't feel like going to work. I don't feel like looking at this on TV anymore. Oh, I know. I'm tired. Like, I'm tired. But I've got 
two little kids at home. My, my son, Chase, who is just this little weird kid, he is just this funny little, you know, if you tell him, hey, you want to go play football this year? He's like, no, nah, I'm going to read a book. Like, he's just like this <laughs> funny little kid. And he's athletic to a degree, but he's mainly like, his thing is he's going to be a scientist one day. And so then I've got my inquisitive girl, who is 11, Carrington. And both my kids are very, I guess, empaths. Like, they feed off what, what you're feeling. And so I was just kind of like in a moment. And so I remember my husband took Chase outside to play basketball. And their thing is that Chase always wants his dad to record what they're doing so he can look at it later, uh-huh. you know? And he's like, dad, dad, put the phone over there so you can get me shooting hoops and watch this. And he'll do something. And so I just remember Lou, my husband, sending me all these photos of them. And I was just like, I needed to cry because I'm like, here's my little boy who clearly does not understand the world. And he doesn't understand that we are going to have to have the talk. You know, everybody talks about the talk. Because at some point, society won't see him as the cute little boy that I see him as, you know? And so I said, I'm going to sit down and get my words together. And I remember I said, I want to just say a few things. A few years ago when this whole thing started with Black Lives Matter, I remember you can even say that without people thinking it was like, almost like a, not a slur, but a, I don't know what you would phrase it as. but me, A threatening. A threatening. Yeah, but me as a Black woman, I could not say Black Lives Matter. And I just, every time I thought about that, I was like, this is dumb. I'm black. Like, I know I matter. Like, you don't ever have to question that the same way you do. And you, it's so weird. Fast forward to 2020 and with everything that happened, like it literally took a knee in the neck on video, on the news for like everybody to kind of get on board. And that's what I talked about in what I wrote. I said, you know, I think it's just heartbreaking that in 2020, I finally can string those words together without the majority of my comments from viewers being hateful. Wow. And I said, I don't know about you, but as a mother, I can't look at my child. And I showed the picture of my son playing basketball with his dad, which is the cutest little picture because the two of them, he's like jumping up in the air. And I said, I cannot as a good mom, because I'm a good mom, I cannot look at my boy in the face and say, black lives don't matter. I can't say, are you kidding me? The same way I wouldn't expect that from you, you better be telling your kids they matter. That's how we raise good people. So that's where I came from it from, not necessarily as a journalist, but just to say, you know what, we're all here. And it's going to take all of us. Because like you said, if you look into boardrooms and companies, the majority are not Black. So we can't do the big power move, change, you know, the way things are. It does take all of us, and it takes all of us not feeling threatened. You know, I just loved hearing her talk about her family and her pride and her kids, but my heart breaks when I hear Tirsa speak about to have the talk mm-hmm. because our kids being safe is such a fundamental need. And we I remember us having a sidebar about how when my son was in high school, he said, you know, he used to sit by the window in case there was an active shooter, he could jump out real fast. Yeah. Tirsa relayed that story so well and made me think about what many parents go through who worry about their children or other members of their family, about them being judged on no other basis than skin color or some other trait, whether it's religion or what have you. I mean, just the fear of knowing what our society can be capable of is really, I think, very sobering sometimes. Yes, we really should all hug our kids closely, but also offer understanding and kindness to other families and realize that we have far more in common than we have differences when it comes to the important things in life. You know, sometimes it doesn't feel like that, but really we are, you know, we're, we're all human. We're all part of one big, large humanity. 
I could not agree more. And just huge thanks to Tirsa for crystallizing those issues for us so well. And another family heartstring story, this one aimed toward older generations. There was nothing quite like having Tennessee Air National Guard Lieutenant Colonel Ashley Nicholas on the show last year. Well, first of all, she's a badass. Well, yes. It's a given. There's no other way to put it. And and yes, Ashley's grandfather died as a U.S. military pilot in the Pacific Theater of World War II after running out of fuel on a weather reconnaissance and bombing raid mission. His life sacrifice drove his granddaughter Ashley's life inspiration to become a pilot, and she did. And ultimately, one who was a mid-air refueling mission combat aviator herself. So Yeah, she's amazing. She's literally following in her grandfather's footsteps. It is. And um, hearing her speak of her grandfather's legacy and what it meant in her family stopped me in my tracks when I heard the story here. And Chris, let's listen to Ashley tell her story. Would you share a little bit about why you decided to become a pilot and your journey? And I love the story about Mm -hmm. your grandfather. Yeah. Oh, yes. That is my mother's father. His name was Ted Holmes, Theodore Breckenridge Holmes. He was a B-17 pilot out of North Africa, staging out of Libya at the time early in the war. And I've read letters from him where he was on mission number 28. And He was training a brand new co-pilot. He had to teach how to take off, do a bombing mission, and land, all while being shot at over Italy while his buddies were being shot out of the sky beside him. And he said, I apologize for my trembling hand. Sometimes the pressure gets a bit overwhelming. But he was so passionate about, please tell everyone at home that we are doing what we need to do. This is a mission that the world needs to take on because there is evil in this world that we are fighting against. And it's very interesting hearing his words from those letters. He came home, I believe he had survivor's guilt, honestly, from reading his letters. And he decided to sign up and fly B-29s in the Pacific. And he was sent to Saipan as a B-29 aircraft commander. He arrived there in November, if my timeline is correct, of 1944. And he flew his last mission in 1945, March of 1945. And he actually was sent on a mission with his crew to do weather reconnaissance and also a bombing raid. And halfway through the mission, they realized they weren't gonna have enough fuel to get back if they continued with their mission. However, the weather reporting was extremely vital for the follow-on mission, which was Operation Meeting House, which was the first major firebombing of Tokyo that was gonna be going that evening after they landed. So they elected to continue. And on their way home, they ran out of fuel and he had to ditch it into the Pacific. He died. However, four other people survived from his crew. And so that's how I was able to find online, actually, the final mission and their thought process. And, you know, he so believed in what he did that he sacrificed everything for it. And my mother was actually born two months after his death. So in that moment where I read that story, it was actually on a temporary duty assignment It really brought me full circle because what I do as an air refueling tanker pilot is I make sure those men and women get home to their children, to their families, that they are able to save the troops on the ground and make sure those troops get home. And so I'm not the fighter pilot, 
And, you know, I'm just more in the backside of things, but we always have a constant mission over the troops on the ground and the fighters in the air to make sure that they get home safely. And to me, that's worth more than any type of recognition or glory and being another type of like fighter pilot or anything. Everybody has their mission that is so vital and important in our military. And none of it can be de-emphasized because all these moving parts make things happen. I'm going to guess that first-time listeners to the podcast will think that I spend every other interview in tears after hearing these stories, but I do have a soft spot for family sentimentality, and I guess it shows. Yeah, we can be hard on ourselves and each other, and we're in a very difficult profession, but at the end of the day, Mary Beth, I think you and I both have very big hearts and we love people and we just want to do good work. And speaking of doing good work and good people, Melissa Carter's story of coming out to her family in her early 20s, which can easily be one of the most petrifying processes for a member of the LGBT community, really hit home to me about what unconditional love is all about. And I love this story because I love Melissa. And Melissa, I knew so well from that time that we were both in high school together. You know, we grew up in Columbia, Tennessee, and I knew her family and these personalities that she described in this anecdote. So it was personal for me to hear it. And it reminds me so much of the tension around the Thanksgiving table or other big family gathering dinner tables where, you know, you have one family member who, unbeknownst perhaps to everyone, they're sort of dying inside because they can't be authentic and real with their own family. But in Melissa's case, she overcame that. Her family overcame that by meeting her at least halfway. So, Chris, let's turn to Melissa's story on that. It's really touching. At that point, I was very confused. I think I was emotionally stunted professionally not stunted. Like Mary Beth said, I I put all my energies into what I wanted to do with my professional life. And so that's why I was at the radio station in high school. That's why in college, I was a part of organizations and leadership things. And that's why I moved to Atlanta and got a job at Turner Broadcasting. I mean, I was really focused on my career and just let my personal life kind of fall to the wayside because I was confused and scared of it. I came out at 25 to, well, actually, no. I came out to Mary Beth in, when I was in college and she yeah. was still in high school. So she was one of the first people I ever came out to. And I was scared to death to come out to Mary Beth because she was the first test of whether or not friends would leave me. And Mary Beth didn't I, leave I me. remember so much out in front of your parents' house in the driveway. We were mm-hmm. just sitting there talking. We had, I think, been out with some friends and stuff. And I think I'd maybe driven you home or something. And we were just about to say adios for the evening. And you almost started hyperventilating because you... You needed Mm -hmm. to tell me something, and you were, I was like, what is going on? Is she sick? Mm -hmm. I was really, and then when you told me, it was like, I mean, it was a pretty game-changing thing relative to, because I had not had a friend who had ever confided that kind of personal information Mm -hmm. to me before. And my heart went out to you so much because of, I could just tell the pain that Mm -hmm. this was causing you, the fact that you had had to bottle it up for so long. And to show people that, she thought something was wrong because the way I was conveying it is if it was bad news. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, so the other thing it shows the self-perception of the gay community is if you are dispelling terrible news to someone when you come out. Well, I think that your 
fear was just like, how would I react? Because we had been right. so close for so long and such very good friends. And I'm sure there was just that concern of right. how is she going to, I mean, is she not going to want to be friends anymore? Or, right, exactly. And it, it's that kind of reaction. And especially then, I think today, I mean, if we had been, what, 18 and 20 years old today and it was yeah. the same situation, it'd be maybe a very different context than, yeah. than when it was in 1990 when I, that happened. And, we'll, and I'll go ahead and comment on that. I think that it depends on your parents, honestly. Yeah. So my former partner and I, sounds like we had a law firm together uh, because we weren't <laughs> married. Uh, so it is weird. To, I call her my baby mama on the podcast yeah. because she we share a child. So calling her my ex-girlfriend just does not do You're her right, enough right, justice. Right, right. And she's not my ex-wife. So she's my baby mama. But she had known him since he was a baby. So he was the son of a friend of hers. And he came out at 16, but he was scared to death to come out. And she's like, he's had a gay aunt this whole time and still was concerned. Because his parents. Yeah. And even though his parents were liberal. But it's just interesting how it's again about self-perception. We'll talk about that in the branding part. But I didn't come out to my parents until I was 25. So I came out to Mary Beth when I was like 18, 19. And I came out to my parents at 25, and I came out to each family member one at a time to test them out. Even at 25 years old, I was still yeah. hesitant. And I came out to my brother first, and my brother's reaction was, well, tell me something I didn't already know. Right. And then my sister second, and then my mother third, and then my father was the <laughs> was the scariest thing. Yeah. Mary Beth knew my dad. Yeah. He's yeah. A, he was an intimidating figure. He was a big personality, fun guy, but six foot two, it's just intimidating, right? And conservative. And con very conservative. Yeah. And so, very religious. And we'll, we can talk about that too, because unfortunately, I think that the church community has <laughs> work to do. Perpetuated and, some yeah, of these Yeah, not all churchgoers have perpetuated it, but unfortunately, for people who go to church, there are churches and groups and churches that have perpetuated this anti-homosexual campaign and still does. So my father and I went to go get a new car for me and we stopped at a Wendy's on the way back. I'll never forget where we were. He already had clued in by that point because I, I purposely did one at a time so that it would domino effect. My brother would tell my sister and then by the time I got to her, it's fine. Then they would have told my mom. By the time I got to her, she was fine. <laughs> so... So, it's a great strategy. So that's how I did it. So I told my father, I said, I thought you, of all the people, would reject me. And my father's response to me was, well, Jesus would have never done it, so why should I? Oh, gosh. If only everybody could have yeah. that perspective. Yeah. And I thought he, to me, was the truest Christian I'd ever met. So, and after I came out to my parents and after my family was fine, then my life, I went from 30 to 100 miles yeah. per hour. Well, as we wrap up this episode, I want to close with another favorite personal story, the one told by Mike McClamrock, who leads the East Tennessee Foundation and had a very poignant discussion with the late legendary head coach of the Lady Volunteers basketball team, Pat Summit, right after she discovered she had Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. I agree. This one is so riveting, particularly the way Mike told it. I love Mike McClamrock, by the way. He is such a fantastic leader in every way. I think he's quite visionary with regard to philanthropic engagement and just advocating for philanthropy in general, which is such a big part of the holiday season. And as we think about this season of giving, it's particularly moving to hear this story about a woman of such status and power at the time when she served as head coach for decades of the Lady Volunteers. She, you know, she was facing her biggest life battle head on, and 
even so, she had her primary focus being on helping others and to find a cure. Chris, let's cue up our conversation with Mike McClamrock. I would like to turn the conversation a little bit to one of the funds that you've managed for some time that has a lot of name recognition because it's named for the late legendary coach, Pat Summit. One of our recent guests on Misinterpreted was Marshall Ramsey, who is an extended family member of my husband's. He's a renowned editorial cartoonist. I know you know Marshall. He donated his memorial illustration of Pat Summit to the foundation. Again, it's just one of the many scores of funds that you manage, but I wanted to just ask you about that one in particular, because I know that that's a name that a lot of our listeners know quite well with regard to the legacy of Coach Summit. And I I wanted to just get your insights about what she meant and means today with regard to her memory and the memory of what she means to the East Tennessee Foundation and what it's meant to ETF to serve as a steward of such an important legacy fund. This one is really personal for me, Mary Beth. I remember being invited out to Pat's house to meet with her. She had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's, but she was doing well. And we had a great conversation. And I sat at her kitchen table with her two Labrador retrievers at my feet. And she began to kind of tell her story about where she grew up and the things that she was proud of and the things that were important to her. And she leaned across the table and she said this to me. She said, Mike, I am really proud of what we've been able to accomplish at the University of Tennessee. She said, do you know that 100% of my players achieved their degree? And I didn't know that. And I said, wow, you know, that is really an accomplishment. And think of the difference you've made in those young women's lives. And she leaned in closer and she looked at me. And I don't know if you remember or you've ever heard this, but she had the most intense stare Mm -hmm. and the most steely blue eyes. And she looked at me and she said, but Mike, what I want my legacy to be is to beat this disease. And I need your help. And I was stunned And she looked at me, and then immediately she followed up with, will you help me? And there is no way that anybody in that situation is not going to look her right back directly in the eyes and say, yes, I will help. I will do everything I can. Mm -hmm. And as a result, the Pat Summit Foundation came to East Tennessee Foundation We are their back office. Mm -hmm. We do all those functions that we've mentioned earlier. And we've had to kind of transform. This is a fund that requires a different kind of work than any of our other funds. Most of our other funds are not national or international in scope. We've had to do certain business functions that we have never had to do before for other funds. For example, there are 38 states across the United States for which you have to apply for a solicitations permit in order to raise funds in their state. Some of our fundraising appeals with the Pat Summit Foundation are national. So we have It's been a steep learning curve. Um, We've had to do lots of things differently. It's our most high-profile fund by far, but it also is one of our most important. And 
we all work together. So there are two people whose primary objective is to advance uh, the Pat Summit Foundation and do that work. And we're really proud of the Pat Summit Clinic at the University of Tennessee. And we're also proud of the grants that we make in the area of caregiver support, in the area of education about Alzheimer's, and then also research for a cure. Mm -hmm. uh, we're really proud of that work. Mm -hmm. uh, its influence continues to grow across the country, and we are remaining true to our commitment to Pat to help this, her foundation, be her lasting legacy. That's such an inspiring story hard to go on after that. It's like, we should just end <laughs> right, right there. Right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and like I said back then, that's a great one to end on this it Thanksgiving is. season. I think so too. Uh, from everyone here at Fletcher Marketing PR listeners, we wish our colleagues, their families, and all of you a wonderful holiday season ahead. We live in challenging times, but with each other, the future always looks brighter. And as long as we stick together, love each other, and support each other, I mean, come from a place of gratitude, we're all going to be just fine. So to our listeners, you can connect with us on Twitter handle Fletcher PR. You can also follow me at Twitter handle at KD Fletcher and Mary Beth at Twitter handle Mary Beth West. We will respond to your questions and comments, so please post them using the hashtag MsInterpreted, and that's hashtag MsInterpreted. And for visibility's sake, don't forget to capitalize the PR. Everyone, thanks for joining us. Don't forget to give someone you love a hug today, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us on Misinterpreted, Public Relations Demystified. You can keep up with the latest on the podcast at FletcherMarketingPR.com and on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll see you next time 